Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. It's nice to be back after a week away. We're getting back into the swing of the offseason with two guests today. First up, Notre Dame coach Marcus Freeman joins the show to talk about his meteoric rise to one of the most coveted jobs in college football at the age of 36. The hope is we'll have a regular segment with a head coach throughout the offseason. No better place to start than with Freeman, whose elevation to head coach after Brian Kelly's departure for LSU was one of the most startling events of a silly season of coaching changes that had plenty of them. After we catch up with Freeman, Ari Wasserman from The Athletic joins the show to talk about college football playoff expansion. We never got a chance to dig into expansion after news broke on February 18th that negotiations between conference leaders to change the format had failed and the system would remain four teams through the 2026 season. I don't want to just rehash old news, but Ari wrote a column, a solid column, voicing the opinion of quite a few fans. I don't think it's a majority, but it's a significant segment that doesn't want expansion. Ari brought up some good reasons to stay at four teams, but when he started talking about participation trophies and what should be celebrated in college football, it got me thinking about why we need a system that is accessible to more than just a small sliver of elite programs. And what it really got me thinking about is what goes into having an elite program. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's excellent NFL podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com, aptop25mailbag, the digits 25 at gmail.com and away we go joining me this week on the podcast is marcus freeman the new coach of notre dame relatively new been at the job for about two and a half months now and so normally i would ask you marcus thank you very much for joining me today uh how are you settling in but you have had no time to settle in uh it's been bowl games recruiting hiring a staff so i'll ask you how you doing (laughs) <laughs> I'm doing great. You know, finally, as you said, we, we have our full staff here. Um, we're we're, we're kind of we hired seven new guys as, as full time staff members and we've hired uh, plenty of off the field staff members also. And so, you know, now just kind of to continue to integrate with our players and introduce our players to our staff and develop this trust and relationship that we have to have to to reach the heights that we want. And so um, we're, we're definitely settling as a staff, settling as a program and now. Uh, starting our preparations for spring ball. So uh, we're going to look forward and we're going to look back a little bit. And the first part of looking back is, again, you know, you were hired under a 
very odd circumstance uh, insofar as it happened very quickly. Well, it becomes apparent Brian Kelly is leaving on a Monday. And by Wednesday, we're getting, it becomes apparent that Marcus Freeman is going to be the next head coach at Notre Dame. So it's it, it basically about a 48 hour, maybe 72 hours where all this stuff happens. As much as you're comfortable revealing what goes on behind the curtain there, can you take me through the moments where you find out Coach Kelly is leaving to where Marcus Freeman is the next football coach, head football coach at Notre Dame? <laughs> yeah, I remember like it was yesterday. And uh, the one thing you do know is you had a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but I was uh, on Monday evening or Monday afternoon. I was in a high school um, seeing a, a committed young man. And um, I get I look at my phone. and I have six missed phone calls from Coach Kelly. And I said, OK, this is probably important. So I walk outside and I give him a call and he says, Marcus, I'm sorry, but I've taken the head coaching job at LSU. And um, I know you just moved here. And then quick, very soon after, he says, I want you to come down and be our defensive coordinator. And he said, do you want to go? And I said, well, well absolutely, coach. I need a job. And uh, I said, just let me talk to my wife before I make any final decision. And um, I went back in and, and saw the kid and in my head, I, I, my head's just spinning and I don't know what my future is going to be. And so by the time probably 11 o'clock that night, I started getting one of many phone calls from the uppers here at the University of Notre Dame and, and just seeing if I would have interest, which obviously was absolutely, um, you know, and they understood that I had to make decisions on my future, too. I just didn't have a lot of time to to really sit here. Or I need to make sure I have a job. And so um, fast forward to really Wednesday, you talk about a lot of conversations between myself and the board of trustees. And finally, Wednesday morning, I had a chance to interview with our athletic director, Jack Swarbert. And it was in a long four hour, me and him, um, really, why am I the best candidate to be the next head coach? And so, you know, after those four hours, I spent some time talking to our president who was over in, I think he was in Rome and uh, we zoomed and, and it was a, a really different interview than I had as a defensive coordinator. So I interviewed him with him to be the defense coordinator. But when you talk about interviewing with the president of your university, Father Jenkins, to be the head coach, the, the it was a very different interview in terms of understanding what this responsibility would entail. And so finally, um, that Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday evening, I get a call from our athletic director saying, hey, I want you to be our next head coach. And it was just such a surreal feeling. I remember just wanting I, I was in disbelief and um, I can remember it like it was yesterday saying, OK, like what now? And he said, you can't talk to anybody. I don't want you on the phone. I don't want you leaving your house. Um, I will let you know what the next steps are. And he said, the only person you can tell is your wife. And so. I kind of walked downstairs and my wife looked at me and I just said, Hey, I'm going to be the next head coach of the university of Notre Dame. And we all kind of celebrated. It was a great family moment. And from then 48 hours later, you're introduced to the team and, and everybody I'm sure has seen a, a part of that video, but mm -hmm. what a surreal moment to be able to embrace your team as the head coach. And uh, from then you put your work hat on and you got the work. So, uh, this almost sounds silly to ask because, uh, you know, of course you want to be the head coach at Notre Dame. Like who would not want to be the head coach at Notre Dame? But again, this all happens so fast. 
did you have, I don't know if you had any, had a chance to have any doubts about whether you wanted to do this, but within this process, was there ever a conversation with your wife about, you know, I could go be defensive coordinator at LSU for another year. In other words, like, was there any doubt in your mind that maybe this is happening too quickly? I can't process it that fast. Maybe this isn't the right move for me. Well, I don't think we had doubt. Would this be the right move? There was doubt. Am I ready? It is, are you truly ready to be the head coach at the University of Notre Dame? And, and that was the thing that, you know, I talked to my wife about. I talked to, you know, Mike Vrabel was a good friend of mine. Um, and I remember talking to him and, and the conversation was like, you're never ready. Until you're in that chair, you're never ready. There's, there's things that you can be prepared for, but are you truly ready for everything that's going to come across your desk? No, but continue to solve issues or solve the problems with the person you are internally. The person Marcus Freeman has been from the time I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, to the person I am now as a husband and a father. That's how I solve my issues with my heart and, and doing things, hopefully, with integrity and, and doing things the right way, but working extremely hard. And um, that's that's just to continue to, in my head, okay, what do I need to make sure I'm prepared for is, is the thoughts that went to my head. But there was never, ever a doubt in my mind that I wanted to be the head coach at the University of Notre Dame. It's so interesting the way you put that and the way Coach Vrabel put it to you, that you're never ready. I, I use this example, Marcus. You know, guys who do what I do for a living, we write about college football and we like to spout opinions. Sometimes they're okay. Sometimes maybe not so much. Often we get asked, so how do you think this person will do in this job? And for years, I would try to give, you know, serious answers. But the longer I've done this job, the more I realize, like, listen, guy seems like X, Y, or it's coach X, Y, or Z, Marcus Freeman, whoever it may be, uh, seems like a good coach, but you never know until you're in the, until that coach is in the chair. There's been a lot of really, and because it's not just how good a coach you are, it's how good a fit you are, how good the circumstances are around you. Uh, so I, I think it's very interesting, the answer of like, you're never really ready per se, because the job itself is so unique. And also the head coach job at Notre Dame is different from another school and different from a, from another school. So I like it's in that perspective. It was interesting to me. And I, I wonder um, when you heard that, like, was that enlightening to you or did you have a sense that that was the way you've thought about these jobs as you've come up in coaching in a very short period of time? Yeah, I think that I always continue to learn on the job. And I think about when I was the first time linebackers coach at Kent State University and I didn't You think you have a clue, but you have no clue really what coaching entails and and you go from there to Purdue and and I think you get better you get better at at your skill set you know and then all of a sudden you go to your the first time deepest corner at the University of Cincinnati and I had no clue really what that would entail in terms of okay you implement the scheme but there's so much more to that in terms of a leadership role and so the same thing the the, the requirements when you come to Notre Dame are completely different and so I think the ability to Look at a situation, address where you need to enhance that and find different ways to enhance it, something I've always done and that I'll continue to do. Right. I can't wait to hopefully two, three years, four years from now, looking back to the first year as the head coach of Notre Dame and say, man, look how you've grown. But I hopefully it ain't that long because hopefully we grow really fast. <laughs> 
your career. I want to make sure I had this right. Did your, your career in the NFL ended after you had uh, a diagnosis of an enlarged heart? Yes. Uh, again, it, you're on three teams in one year, right? And so I've been cut from the Chicago Bears, were cut from the Buffalo Bills, and I finished with the Houston Texans. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking maybe this is time. And I remember going to see Coach Trestle saying, hey, I think I want to be a GA, a graduate assistant at Ohio State. And he ended up his coach call. And I remember he said, as long as you can play, go play. Come back. You can always come get in the coaching. And so I go to a physical in, in Indianapolis, and they find an enlarged heart valve. And to me, it's almost a sign from God that, hey, no, you're not going to keep chasing this dream. You need to get into your next phase of your life. And, and I'm so thankful that really did happen um, and, and kind of started me towards my next chapter. So, and, but coaching clearly was a slam dunk for you. You had already thought, uh, looked at, looked at your future and thought, okay, when the playing days are over, coaching is where I'm at. Well, I didn't at first, when I was in college, I wanted to be an athletic director. And I always said, I don't want to work those crazy hours. These coaches work. And <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I want to do. And, and I actually GA my senior year for Gene Smith at Ohio state. And, um, but then all of a sudden you think everybody thinks they're going to play 10 years in the NFL. Right. You're going to have so much money. You're going to be able to figure out what you do with the next chapter of your life. All these young people I talk to now, that's that's their only mindset. How long will I play in the NFL? Well, all of a sudden when you you're on your third team in one year, you're like, man, am I ready to move away from this game so quickly? And and that's kind of why I developed this passion for for coaching. As so I thought. Right. It was, hey. I was on practice squad. I'm enjoying watching film. I'm enjoying being a part of the football program in Houston. And, and, and then all of a sudden, but I wasn't playing because I was on practice squad. And I'm like, maybe I do want to get into coaching instead. And so I thought in my mind, coaching was what? Just developing these defensive schemes and, and you know, can we be better than our opponent? It had nothing to do with serving young people. But that's what I quickly learned college coaching is about and, and it's when all of a sudden you give a young person tips and keys to have success and they achieve it it's the greatest feeling that, that for me that I could ever have and so I've developed a strong passion for serving young people helping them reach their goals and, and that's to me why I do this it's not as much as you know just being better than your opponent being the best scheme guy no it's making sure that you help young people reach their goals okay so you know I may mention every job is a little different Notre Dame is maybe more different than most head coaching jobs. Frankly, I, I, you know, we use the word unique. Notre Dame is unique. And in many ways, frankly, also Marcus, it might be the toughest job in college football. So no pressure, right? (laughs) But I guess, let me ask you this, who have you talked to, right? Again, understanding that you're going to learn how to be the Notre Dame coach and how Marcus Freeman does the Notre Dame coach, right? Because you'll be a Notre Dame coach different from Brian Kelly, different from Ty Willingham, different from Bob Davey, different from Lou Holtz. But when you're trying to learn how does one go about being the Notre Dame coach, who have you reached out to? Well, I think you you, you tend to study history, the past, to, to, to continue to make sure that you don't repeat the same mistakes. And, and a guy I talked to more than anybody is Jim Tressel, who was my college coach, right? And the ability to just run things 
you know, across his table and across his desk, hey, what have you done in this situation? Things like, hey, how much should we allow the media to come to practice? Um, and and a lot. Hey, what do we? What do we should we, be a yeah. lot. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be my advice too. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and those are some things that you don't think about before you become the head coach to come across your desk. But you know, I've also really, really been able to connect with every former head coach. Um, that's still alive. That's been at Notre Dame, you know, from Charlie Weiss to Bob Davies to, you know, I'm getting on a phone call with Tyrone Willingham later today. And, and um, I spent some time with Lou Holtz and, and just the ability to connect with those guys and the ability to say, Hey, there's only been, I'm the 30th head coach. And there's only been five guys since probably Lou Holtz was the head coach here. And, and tell me what I need to know. Tell me some of the things you learned so I don't repeat it or that I'm prepared for it um, when it comes across my desk. And so that's something that I've definitely been able to utilize in, in utilizing all those former head coaches at this university. Yeah, it's a it's a nice uh, it's a nice lit roster full of uh, pretty respected people. Um, have you gotten a feel yet? Be, I guess it'll be very interesting because you had the bowl experience, but now we'll see what happens when you get to uh, spring practice of uh, as coach Al Golden, uh, you know, your new defensive coordinator mentioned during his press conference. Well, I'm going to try to tell Marcus like where to stand during practice. Right. And it, Cause you mentioned the little things, right. Little things like well, how much media should I accessibility, but like little things like that, where is your mindset on how involved I need to be in this defensive meeting, how involved I need to be in this offensive meeting? Uh, again, all a learning process, but where's your head at on those things? Well, I think it's still a learning curve, right? And that I want to make sure Coach Golden and Coach Reese and Coach Mason, our special teams coordinator, have whatever they feel necessary to have success on their sides of the ball. And um, for me, I think it's giving Coach Golden a chance to really, really make this defense his own in terms of his personality, in terms of his schematic enhancements. Um, he came in and said, listen, I want to start with where you guys finished last year. I want to learn what our current players know and be able to enhance from that point. And so, you know, I've been letting him kind of – Fortunate for him, he played in the Super Bowl and, and he just got here probably two weeks ago. And, and, you know, I know he's really, really been diving deep into that. And the same thing with Coach Reese, for me to be able to learn more offensive ball and to, hey, tell him things that I see from a defensive side of things. And Coach Mason, our special teams coordinator, be able to help him. Like, hey, what do you need from your head coach? Well, hey, I want you to make sure that that you, you are in our meeting so that our players know that it's a point of emphasis. Absolutely. I'll be in every meeting. I'll make sure that, you know, I'm coaching a position. And so I'm still kind of figuring that whole thing out. The one thing I know for sure that I have to be the lead guy is, is for recruiting because I know that that's the, the quickest way to make sure that you enhance your roster. And, and that's something that I want to be the example for our staff in terms of the way we recruit and how hard we work. And that's something that um, I've been doing tirelessly is making sure we recruit as a staff um, and I recruit as a head coach um, harder than anybody else. Um, let me ask you about recruiting. I was going to ask you about Tommy Reese, but we'll get to that in a second. Let me ask you about recruiting because Notre Dame has, a, has a, a, so I would say, you know, a formula that works pretty well. Um, hey, Catholic schools all over the country that are that, that are pretty productive feeders for Notre Dame, though you're not limited to that. Is there anything different? Is there anything different to your approach, maybe your strategy to recruiting that might that we will see a change during as with Marcus Freeman as the head coach of Notre Dame, as opposed to when Brian Kelly was the head coach and Marcus Freeman was just an assistant? 
Yeah, I think there's a passion. One, it starts with a passion I have for giving this this amazing education to young people and helping young people understand what a degree from Notre Dame could do for them in their life. And so that is something I have a strong passion for. Well, the ability to continue is to have relationships with these young people. That's something that I want to do. And so I've been able to just kind of say, hey, my role right now is to try to develop a relationship with young people, their families, the people that make decisions in their life and, and be able to show them, hey, this is what the Notre Dame degree can do for you. And, and yes, we have the football excellence. Yes, you'll be able to compete for national championships here. But I also want you to understand that this is a plan for having life after football because at some point it will end. This is not a plan B, but a, a really a plan A for, for post-football. And so that's something that um, – you know, I really, really enjoy. I love communicating um, and making sure that the young people of this generation understand how valuable this opportunity is. What's your relationship like with Tommy Reese? Yeah, listen, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. Tommy is a former Notre Dame quarterback, a really highly regarded uh, young coach like yourself. I imagine, you know, I know he had conversations and I'm sure to his mind, he thought, well, why can't I be the head coach at Notre Dame? So, he he decided to stay on board. You know, there's been some speculation and some rumors that maybe even after he decided to stay on board, some people came circling back around on him because he is so well thought after. So what's your relationship like with him? And how did were you um, important in playing a role in getting him to say, like, yes, Notre Dame is the place where I need to still be? Well, I think Tommy Reese is a guy that loves this university. He played for, for obviously this place and he bled it for, for Notre Dame and, and um, he loves being a part of this place. And so I want to do everything in my power to keep him. I think he's a tremendous offensive mind. Um, the things he's been able to, uh, me being on a deep side of the ball to seeing the, the, the enhancements that our offense made throughout last season and, and what they're doing now is, is been tremendous. And it's a credit to him and the work and the enhancement that he's continuously doing. And so um, I listen, he's, when you're at Notre Dame and you have success, you are always going to be attractive to other places and fighting some of the places that we had to fight for to keep him this year is, is just going to continue to me to, to, to escalate because of the success I hope we all have. And at some point I want Tommy Reese to continue to grow and, and reach his ultimate goals. I know he wants to be a head coach and he deserves to be a head coach. Um, and the more success we have here, the more opportunities we'll have, he will have in it. And I hope, I really, really hope that all of our coaches have a chance to reach their ultimate goals. Okay. Marcus, you are uh, 36 years old. Again, one of the youngest coaches in major college football, probably in as good a shape, I think. I, I think it's fair to say, as most coaches, in, 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 most, any coach in major college football, if necessary, could you play a couple of downs? Oh, no way. I tell, I tell them all the time. <laughs> I make sure I work out just in case. One of the young guys want me to go get a, maybe a player two an inside team run, but once they start throwing the ball and you got to run to the ball, that's out of my that's out of my realm now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, Marcus uh, Marcus Freeman is the new relatively new coach at Notre Dame. Um, really appreciate you joining me today on the podcast, taking some time, giving us a little insight. Good luck with your first spring practice and all the other firsts that still are to come with, uh, again, maybe the most challenging job in college football. Again, really appreciate your time, Marcus. Thanks. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at ap 
top 25 mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me next on the podcast today is Ari Wasserman from The Athletic, Mr. Stars Matter. Uh, covers national recruiting and all things college football for The Athletic. And you can hear him on The Andy Staples Show, another friend of the podcast, uh, once or twice a week. You're, Andy's like five days a week now, right, Ari? Are you, are you, you're like one or two a week? With him? I'm with Andy twice a week. I do an Ohio State show once a week, and we do a recruiting show once a week. So, and that what a podcast, the, man. Yeah, we're it's uh it's a new world, man. Uh, it used to be uh eighty five percent to ninety five percent writing, and now it's kind of sixty forty. So, you know, you got to keep up with the times a little bit, and I think people enjoy consuming information in a variety of different ways. And you know, I thought I was a pretty good writer, but I think I'm pretty good at this too. So I hope not to sound arrogant, but. I, I, I enjoy talking because I feel like I'm talking to friends, you know, and that's what is cool about it. Cause I would have this conversation with you on the phone while driving to the grocery store. So that's what kind of makes this interesting. That was the inspiration for my starting this podcast. Now, listen, everybody's got a podcast right now and mine's a little older than maybe some of the others, but we're all about relatively contemporary, whether it's Stu and Bruce and Andy has been doing different forms of his for a while. Uh, we've all been doing for about the same amount of time when there was this boom and they've been sustainable and worthy of continuing to do it. I mean, my, my show is not like a huge hit, but like it, it gets enough traction that's worth doing. And I only bring that up to say that like, when I first started doing it, my inspiration was we would go to dinner at an event, you know, maybe before a game or at the playoff or something like that. And you'd be with, you know, three or four writers, national mm-hmm. writers, two or three, maybe. And you'd start having these conversations where like what we always do about work. But our work conversations are about college football, right? <laughs> about cool stuff like college football. And you listen to the conversation. And I'd be on like sort of listening and being part a participant in the conversation and here and le- thinking to myself, this could be a podcast. Like if we just sure. recorded this people would be interested in hearing about all these conversations. So, you know, now I've gotten to the point, the thing, the thing I say all the time, you know, half kiddingly is two sports writers can't have a conversation without it being recorded for a podcast. Like that's, this is just the nature of the way we converse nowadays. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I'll be having a discussion with somebody and they'll be like, stop, stop, save it for the podcast. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, but I do think that it's an interesting way of doing it because people are genuinely interested in this sport. And I don't think that you can hear too much about it. I mean, I cover it for a living. You cover it for a living. I find myself listening to other podcasts about college football. And I like too that, you know, like you said, we're all kind of doing it from the same starting point, but we all have such different personalities and different ways of attacking it that, you know, I think that it's all consumable. And I don't think that, you know, just because somebody listens to the Andy Staples show that they wouldn't want to listen to your show or Bruce and, 
Stu show or the solid verbal or all the other great podcasts out there that you know are about the sport. And I, I know I used to listen to music when I drive and now all I do is listen to podcasts. So it's kind of, you know, it's just, I feel like a smarter reporter and a smarter college football analyst as a result of listening to other people who disagree with me or agree with me, say what they have to say. So I know we're going to, we're going to get into some pretty heated debate here. I have got to feel like, cause like, awesome. I feel like I'm the only person and I'm, let me start this off. If we're going to talk about the playoff expansion to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody listening to the show to think that I'm anti-expansion. Like when, and if that happens, I think it's going to be great. Like, I think it'll be fun to watch. Um, you'll get more good games at the end of the year. There'll be pros to it, but I feel like I'm on an Island a little bit, just begging for somebody to agree with me that, Hey, it's not all that bad right now. And there are some drawbacks to it. So, you know, I'm like the only person I feel like that's written a column that says, you know what, maybe four is better than 12. And, you know, I'm right or wrong. You know, we're just talking about sports here. We're not covering the Pentagon. Uh, and it's all about preference, but I do think there are certain aspects of the expanded playoff that are going to change the sport. And I'm not sure people are considering all the angles of it. So I'm, I'm very interested to get into it with you. Okay. So I didn't want to necessarily completely rehash, but yes, the reason, one of the reasons why I brought you on is because, you know, we're, we're two weeks removed from this topic. So I didn't want to necessarily dive into the yes or no, should it expand that much? Um, and if you want to hear that, folks, and you don't listen to Andy's show with Ari, I think it was about a week and a half ago. You can find mm-hmm. that episode and, 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 you know, Andy takes his pro stance and Ari takes his not necessarily anti-expansion staff stance, but as you said, Maybe sort of devil's like, advocate would be a good yeah, way to devil, put it. Which is, which is important. And I actually think that it, the other reason why it's important for you to come on this show is because I'm pretty pro expansion and I feel like we, I haven't served that voice and there's definitely fans. Yeah who don't believe that it should expand. But again, I don't want to get. So when you were listening to me and Andy talk about it, though, were you like pounding your fist against the table like this guy's an idiot? Like, were you like passionately against what I was saying? No, I mean, there was a couple of things. And here, let's let's start. Let's do it then. Because because here's here's where it was. Like for For the most part, I thought your your main point was excellent, which is you're going to expand this playoff. And it's going to benefit the superpowers even more, right? The few times that Ohio State hasn't gotten in, it would have gotten in if the playoff was expanded. The one time Alabama didn't get in, it would have gotten in. And if you give those teams more chances, that's right, they are more likely to win the whole thing. So I, I tend to, I think, I think that's a, a solid point. However, also your camera turned off. However. There was this part of your story that I thought that sort of set me off a little bit because it's got a trigger phrase in here for me. Well, I want to know why it's a trigger phrase. Okay, we'll get to it. But the CFP, I'm going to just read from your story. But the CFP is for determining the national champion. So why are we so insistent on inviting teams that aren't good enough? Do we want people hanging banners for CFP berths the way they hang Sweet 16 banners in college basketball? Do we want participation trophies? I hate that. I hate that phrase because I know the way it's used pejoratively and it drives me out of my freaking mind uh, in college football. Do we want programs to celebrate that they got into the playoff only after it was opened up uh, three times as uh, for two, three times as many teams? Do we want to devalue regular season losses? Do we want to give up playoff debates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really a lot about that participation trophy thing. So first of all, 
I hate that term because it's been sort of weaponized and it tends to be used by like meatheads who are just don't really, and I'm not accusing you of being a meathead. I'm not, trust me. (laughs) I I wish I was. I get accused, but like, I feel like it gets used as this way of like sort of in a very demeaning way. And listen, I'm not necessarily for participation trophies, but I I think it's used in this, in this spirit, like poorly, like, you're not rewarding participation if you expand the playoff. The playoff would be expanding from like three percent of FB or less than that, even like 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 what two percent of FPS FBS com- competes in the playoff. It would be eight percent if it went to, or b- barely ten percent if it expanded to twelve. That's still a, a very tiny pool of teams. So the, this idea, I, I just I, I get a little wrapped up in this. And the bigger point is. Like college football, I hear this some too. This like we want to reward excellence. We want to reward excellence. Like college football is a sport about sort of being born on third, thinking you hit a triple, right? Like like college football rewards like location, right? College football rewards reputation, and I don't mean that in a way like the the the, the those teams get a benefit of the doubt. I mean like you are good because you have always been good and you have established a tradition of being good. So we continue to go to your school. It rewards like, you know, geography and Mm -hmm. demographics and population shifts. Notre Dame became a superpower because Catholic immigrants thought this is a great school. I want to support like that. That was like the fuel that, 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 that rose Notre Dame to the top of the sport in the early 19th century uh, or the mid 19th century or 20th century, excuse me. Uh, You know, army became a power because we went to war, right? Michigan state became a power because of segregation. Then the then when when we desegregated the South, the Southern schools started to rise again, and it took years really for them to become the powers again. There was a long period of time where a lot of the Southern schools were sort of getting washed aside, and it was the schools that segregated that desegregated sooner. So Miami and and the Florida schools became powerhouses, yes, because Howard Schnellenberger was a great coach and he had a vision. But it was also because the population boomed in Miami and he was willing to take a chance on these, these a the population boom and also a certain amount of black players. So I guess my, my thing is like this idea that like, well, what, if you just tried harder, you could be Ohio State is ridiculous. Like, so yeah. we need a playoff structure that sort of re- like acknowledges that it's not just how like how much you commit to being good like but that's why you need a little more access and you should reward some access because it's only a small sliver of schools who even have a chance at being elite yeah okay thank you for coming to my ted talk yeah yeah I, and i i totally get that like there are certain schools that have benefited for from circumstances you ever been to the hamptons i have been to the hamptons not that often how, how many people live like in the hamptons do you think that didn't have parents that could afford to live there not not many. Not yeah. Many. Yeah. You know, what my life is my, my dream in life is to right. be successful enough in com- combination with my wife for us to be successful enough to buy oceanfront property in Orange County one day. OK. You know why I don't live there? Why? 
because it's not priced for me right now. <laughs> right. And I know that a lot of people would like to live there and they don't because that's not the way the world works. So, and the thing that's like funny to me a little bit about the examples that you gave is that all the teams that you mentioned about being superpowers or powers or being good are the teams that aren't making the playoff anyway, you know, like Michigan state, Miami, you know, Notre Dame to a certain extent, you know, we, we would be expanding it to teams that, you know, used to be superpowers that aren't. So, you know, the thing to me is college football has different um, layers to it. Certain teams doing something um, could be a failure to one team and a success to another, like Wake Forest winning the ACC last year would have been a monumental accomplishment for that program that it could have hung a banner for, and it could have, you know, really celebrated for all time. And, and basically the season that they had, even though it didn't culminate in an ACC championship, probably still is going to be remembered forever. Maybe the best um, in program, yes. if not, so, not one of the best. So to point. me, I guess maybe one of the drawbacks of the playoff existing in general is, is that we have become so focused on who wins the national title and that teams that have otherwise great years don't feel as successful because they weren't included in that, in that discussion. But during the bowl season, there were only two teams uh, or the, when bowls and the BCS were a thing, there still were only two teams playing for a national championship. And if you won the Rose bowl or you won the cotton bowl, or you did something that your program hadn't done in a long time, you could finish that year with a win and feel really good about yourself. So like to me, the playoff has taken that away a little bit. So I understand the idea that you want to give it to the, to the teams that rise up and have once in a lifetime seasons, which happens for a new team, you know, every year. But to me, the college football playoff has always been, and will always be about crowning a national champion. And just because there are teams that are in the have nots category, maybe because of geography or maybe because of unfortunate history, or maybe because their program hasn't had as much, you know, administrative or fan buy-in as some of these other schools, to me, expanding the playoff is saying, well, you're never going to be good enough to ever be Alabama or Ohio State. So what we're going to do is we're going to expand it just for your benefit so that you can feel good about yourself only to get led into uh, the slaughterhouse the way a cow would and lose by 40 to the team that belongs there. And it's like, if that's what people want, then that's fine. You know, if, if that's what you think is better for the sport. But like if Wake Forest would have won the ACC last year and missed the playoff, and then gone on to a, a New Year's Six Bowl and won that bowl, I think that's a more fortunate outcome for that team and that memory of that team than it would be putting them on the same team, on the same field as Alabama. So, like, in my opinion, what Cincinnati did last year, what Michigan did last year, beating Ohio State and winning the Big Ten and making it to the playoff, Cincinnati being the first team in, in Group of Five to ever make the playoff, that accomplishment is transcendent because they broke through. And when Washington broke through and when Oregon broke through and when Michigan State broke through, those are those are accomplishments and achievements that weren't weren't created in a lab because you're inviting more teams to play in that in that event. And, and what you're doing is. And maybe participation trophy is a, a trigger word for you, but you're you're giving people an opportunity to celebrate inclusion into a thing that they don't belong in only based on the expansion of it and not because of merit. And I, and I tell, I tell you if Michigan would have made the playoff for the first time as a number nine seed, it wouldn't have been as special uh, for them as it was this year. And I think there is something to that. Um, And the other thing I'll say, you know, now that I'm on a roll here is that 
the number one thing that we love about college football is when everybody on Twitter types in upset alert in September or October, and you're sitting on the edge of your seat, Alabama's losing to, uh, you know, team X or, you know, Texas A&M, you know, and I didn't know they ended up losing this year and still made it, but, uh, or upset alert in September and October. And we all collectively as a nation watch it together because we're so excited about what could happen in that game and what the results of that game might mean. And, and granted, I know teams lose and still make the playoff, but if you create a 12 team playoff where Alabama losing or Ohio state losing to Michigan in the final week of the season doesn't matter. I think you're taking away some of the greatness of what the sport represents, which is you have to be as close to perfect as possible in the regular season, every single week, or your chances of being in that final four are, are hindered greatly. And it's just like, do we want us a, a, a scenario where Georgia, Ohio state, Alabama, and Clemson make it every single year, no matter what, like, is that what we want? And people think that if the, if the playoff expands to 12, that one year, uh, a, a team that's a 10 seed like this year's pit or well, Mississippi state one year or whatever teams would have made it is going to go on and make it to the final four or make it to the playoff or to the championship game the way it does in college basketball when these teams are physically incapable of doing that. So, you know, I think that making it a, a winner's most elite teams of this year circle makes it more valuable. And I know that there are certain teams like Washington state or Oregon state, or many of the other teams that have uh, bad geography or are, are dealing with, obstacles that other people aren't dealing with, but that kind of mirrors life. There are people that are, are born into situations that are certainly less advantageous than being, you know, the son of a hedge fund manager. You know what I mean? And it's just like, sure. I, I, I'm not saying that like we all need to have an equal. Well, I mean, but, that, but that, that's so the weird part about this is, is though this is sports and competition and generally speaking in sports and comp high level sports and competition, we do figure out ways to create competitive balance, right? I mean, again, like I'm not saying college football needs to be like the NFL. And when I make this like little tirade about how, you know, college football never really rewards excellence, it rewards circumstance more as much as excellence to a certain degree. Circumstances um, of years ago that has manifested into current excellence. Because the teams that make the playoff now are certainly excellent. No, of course, right. Of, without yeah. question, without question. But and I, I always like to put it this way: like I'm not taking away from like what Nick Saban has done. Right? Nick Saban has created the greatest dynasty in the history of college football. How, college football has always had these this construct, and nobody has done what Alabama has done. So I'm not trying to take away what, mm -hmm. the, but like Nick Saban would, couldn't do this at Mississippi State. Now. Now, no, of course not. No, if you put Nick Saban at Mississippi State, it wouldn't be Alabama. I think if you put Nick Saban at another SEC school, he would make the playoff. Oh, oh sure, but he wouldn't do what he's done in Alabama. Oh, yeah, I don't know if he would. I don't know if he could do it again in the next ten years. No, 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 no. But I'm no at I'm, Alabama. That, that, yeah, put Nick Saban. If if you if you put Nick Saban at you know the year he came to Alabama and said no 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 we're going to put you at Mississippi State he would not have won seven national championships at Mississippi yeah. because Mississippi state has a stadium with 50,000, 55. Well, now it's probably up to 60. Like it's just Mississippi state is not, does not have the, but part of the, the reason for that too infrastructure in place to ever match what Alabama has done. 
I understand that. And that's also, but I think there are certain circumstances too, when it comes to administrative buy-in, if Mississippi state were to go out and get a coach like Nick Saban, then paying the money that it would have taken to do that and bringing him in would have been a, a step forward in the direction of buy into the program, which I think then would have transformed what reasonable expectations are. It's not like Mississippi no state doubt. has any less advent, less advantageous geography when it comes to recruiting than the university of Alabama does, that, that, but that's, that's, that's a choice great. from the administration to not be great. What? No, 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 it's not a choice. It's there's limitations built into this for That's why I don't want to just take sec schools and compare them to not like every part of college football has a pecking order. And like I like to say in college football, you will be what you will always what you always have been. Like ultimately, if you want to assess, I can go into next season and you told me like, okay, pick how like give me a list of 20 teams and tell me how they're gonna do next season. I could just simply look at the names of the teams and like without doing a deep dive on the roster and get a pretty good idea of what those schools, what like ceiling floor, because Generally, we've got 100 years of history that tells me about what now the rare exceptions. Clemson became bigger and stronger than it ever was before, even though it had the one national championship sort of like, you know, no, there's no off. question. They are different now. Yeah. Oregon is a is a program that has that that changed the DNA of its program and became a, a much greater program. But those are unbelievably rare exceptions, unbelievably rare. And there is more parity in college football now. I know it sounds weird than ever before because the middle class is able to sort of move a little more. Like you can, yeah. um, like Missouri has a higher ceiling probably than it ever has before if things sort of break right. And the Mississippi schools. But so I, I Miss Alabama in the, and Mississippi State have played 100 games in their history. And Mississippi State has won 16. That is not because Mississippi State hasn't hired the right coach, right? Alabama has not won 83% of the games in a hundred year history of the rivalry because Mississippi State just hasn't committed. That just, it's because. Yeah, no, you're right. There you're are right. structural differences there that will never be overcome. But how does expanding the playoffs solve that problem? No, so I don't, I'm not trying to solve it. I'm just trying to acknowledge that that is baked into the pie of college football. So, so you have that element and the fact that our, our, the rest of the postseason outside the college football playoff has gone off the rails and has kind of sucked. It's sucking more and more. These college football, these, these big bowl games with, with players opting out are, are, are losing their luster. All these games that should be really interesting games, all of a sudden Michigan and State and, 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 and Pitt are playing without the two best players on the team because the, 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 the uh, players are not valuing these games. So my point is acknowledge the fact that, you know, there's an elite, there's a very small elite tier and the rest of the, the rest of the world is operating on a different level that can't reach that elite tier. But and also figure out a way to, to better the rest of the regular season. No, excuse me, the rest of the postseason. The rest of the postseason is broken right now because we the the games around that are should be big games that have meaningful, you know, that that give meaning to accomplish seasons aren't feeling that way because too many players are bailing out of them. That's right. But I don't know that I would want to fix the bowl season at the expense of the regular season either. I don't think so. I don't think you are either. I think you're you're off you're you're off target there. I, I think you're right 
you get if Michigan and Ohio State was in a or Michigan and Ohio State. You don't think as someone who covered Ohio State, if that game plays out and Ohio State still has a chance to make the playoff and they still did and probably would have that Michigan would not have celebrated that game. The way it, having not I, beaten Ohio State in, in eight years, nine years. Oh, they, of course they would have. There's like no that, question that about still it. Still, wouldn't have been a monumental game, even if we knew Ohio State was going to make the playoff. Yes, and it wouldn't have been. I don't know that the rest of the country that made that the highest rated game of the year would have been on the edge of their seats the same way that they were. I, I don't. I, I think that people. That's fair. Like stakes. I think people like stakes. And if you take the stakes away and you make Ohio State's loss inconsequential, I'm not saying in the eyes of the rivalry or the people who are on the teams, but in the eyes of the college football playoff committee and the rest of the sport that likes to listen to podcasts and get on message boards and on Twitter and yell at each other all year about who should be in and who should be out, making a world where no matter what happens to Ohio State in a regular season game, it does not matter to them. They have to lose three games or more and even if they lost three, they'd probably still be in to not make the playoff and be in the top 12. And I think they've only lost more than three games twice in the last like 25 years. Right. And one year was when half their team was suspended. So like, I don't know, like, and I went back and I added it up of all the teams that have finished in between five and 12, the most in the playoff era, Ohio state, Georgia, and Penn state are the teams that would be rewarded the most. So it's like, okay, you want to give Georgia and Ohio state another shot at it, then go ahead. And People like this idea, this romanticized idea that if you expand the playoff, you're going to get Cinderella stories. And what's going to happen is 2015 Ohio State, who lost to Michigan State and created the greatest season in the history of Spartan football, probably would have won the national championship that year. But instead, because they lost to Michigan State in the only game that they couldn't lose, that team wasn't afforded the right to be in the Final Four. And thus, that November game that was one of the best games in the Big Ten of the last 10 years is held to a higher standard than it would have been if it was just like, oh, well, they're both going to make it anyway. And I think that if you do that over the course of time, you are cheapening a regular season that is the best in college football and impacts all these teams with unfortunate backgrounds that you mentioned only to reward us with an extra three games at the end of the year that really it might be nice for them to win a playoff game, but are only a one way ticket to a blowout. So it's just like, what are we, what are we going to fix the, the uh, we're going to fix the cheese it bowl now. So that's going to be great. So we can watch, uh, Mississippi State in its greatest year ever lose 41 to 10 to Alabama in the playoff? Like, what are we doing? Like, it makes but, no sense to but me. But I think you're also devaluing or not valuing enough. Like, yes, the the, the biggest, well, here, let, let me let me dial back here. How many games do you watch on a Saturday, Ari? All of them. Yeah, you watch a ton. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, like, you're like me. So, like, and you're, you can appreciate all of them to a certain degree. And I think most college football fans do. Well, I think college football is probably most universally watched by random fans of teams that don't or that aren't participating in the event. Than any of the sport. I don't watch the Jazz play the Suns on Thursday night. I, the only other sport that can compete maybe. with that is the NFL. So maybe. But, but what, what I'm saying is like, yes, like you lose some of the high wire act of that Ohio State Michigan game. But and I would have to go look up here, like who else? Like, I think Minnesota and Wisconsin played that day too, because I think they played a big game that day, if I remember correctly. That's but like if like the winner of that game still has a chance to get into the SEC championship game. Oh, excuse me, the Big Ten championship game. Now all of a sudden, that game is a high stakes playoff eliminator. 
right? There's all these other, and you can say, well, the, the best games lose a little, but there's all these other games. Like, why shouldn't Minnesota fans get to, get to sort of dream about a playoff or a playoff appearance and how cool it would be? Hey, listen, if we win this game, we still have a chance to make it to the Big Ten title game. If we go to the Big Ten title game and win that, we can make the playoff. They're not going to win the Big Ten title game. They don't do it now. Why would they do it in the future? They're not going to win that game. Even so, if the Minnesota-Wisconsin game meant more in that moment, everybody knows what's waiting for them. There's a power waiting at the end of the road of all these scenarios. And what's so, going to happen is it's a 27-point spread. So, But wait a second. So you don't think that it's still – like, like I, I kind of understand what you're saying. But again, like, occasional upsets happen. And – not very rarely on the stages that matter the most, though. But but do you so you don't think like it's even worth it? Then like why even bother having them? Like then why even bother playing the Big Ten title game? I mean, we, we I, Andy, and I think there's some question about a little that. bit too about like at some point though, you're narrowing the lens on the sport to the point where it's only about Michigan and Ohio State because that's the one game Ohio State might have a chance to lose. Like, I don't know if we want to narrow the lens of this sport to only these elite programs. Like, I think back to that day, Michigan beats Ohio, Ohio State, Auburn and Alabama play the great Iron Bowl game. High stakes on that, though Auburn was out of it, but obviously but Alabama, if Auburn, in an, an expanded Alabama playoff losing, that year, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, yeah, and frankly, even if Alabama lost, even if Alabama did lose that game, came back the next week and beat Georgia, they probably would have made the playoff. So even with two losses. Um and then Ohio, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State play at night, and that's an amazing game. So that was an amazing day of college football around three games and three teams. That All of our focus was on, a, well, not three teams, because Oklahoma and Oklahoma State were still in it. So three games, five teams that still had a chance to, to make it to the college football playoff. And I guess what, I, what I'm suggesting is, like, widen the lens from just these elite programs down doing that in November is good for college football. And, and I, like, I get the point of what you're saying, like Minnesota, they're going to run, they're going to get to the big 10 title game and they're going to get run roughshod by Ohio state or maybe some other big 10 East power. But I, I don't know if I, but again, that, that leads to the slippery slope of why are we playing any of these games? Why don't we just put like, make it a little elite tier and they play against each other. That's what's been happening. Right, but why? But why can't the same we, three teams winning the national championship every single year? It will year. still be that way. It will still be that way. But we'll get some better games along the way. That's all I'm saying is that we will get some better and more intrigue along the way. And it'll be. I think intrigued. it's manufactured intrigue based on inclusion. Because nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody's going to watch these games and think, "Wow, I can't believe they're going to win. A, they could win a national title this year." But but being an elite program is based on a construct that's been in college football of location, circumstance, reputation. So I'm, I'm like, the whole thing is sort of constructed in a way that doesn't provide a lot of opportunity for for growth, right? But this is a year. We're coming off of a year though where two first time playoff entrants made it. Like if you go back and look at every year, there's always a team that makes it that isn't part of that cool kids club. 
Right. Like so Michigan State's made it. Washington's made it. Oregon's made it. Cincinnati's made it. Michigan so what's made wrong it. with having a few a few more of those teams make it? I guess is the point. Where because I'm, there is only six teams in a, in a sport, given year in a sport where, like, again, like I I can't simply aspire to be Ohio State. I'd have to move to Columbus to get to be Ohio State. I'd have to move my university to Columbus and put four thousand. I don't know that I believe that. Now, when you did the Mich- Mississippi State Alabama reference. I absolutely agree that he wouldn't have won seven or six, whatever national championships he would have done. But the nobody said like being Alabama isn't the goal. It's having a special season where that culminates in a top four spot when you actually did something uh, worth merit, like worth merit. Right. And like, if you go back and you look at all the teams, like Oklahoma state had a special year this year, Notre Dame has made it. Um, Oklahoma makes it. Um, Clemson's made it. And you look at a, and a lot of the teams that you that were superpowers like in the '90s, like Nebraska's of the world, and all the other teams in the, in that same regard are also not Alabama. So it's just like I understand the idea of opening it up, but there are literally only five teams, and most years probably only one or two who are built good enough to win a national championship. And if the playoff is a metric that's used. But it's to not. crown the national champion. But it's not just that. That's the thing. It's not. It, it is. It is a tool to determine a national championship. But it is also the structure by which we try to come up with an interesting postseason, and in some ways enhance the regular season. Because you know what, Minnesota fans are allowed to have fun too. I don't want Ari. They certainly breaking, can breaking the breaking the spirits of Minnesota fans. You know what? You don't really don't worry about trying to make the Big Ten uh, title game because you're just going to get your ass kicked anyway. Like I just feel like there's a certain amount of like who cares about those teams? Those fans aren't allowed to have fun. Only but Minnesota Alabama won 11 games. It was like 10 and 0 two years ago, and they were having a blast. Right. So, but, but I'm saying like, why not make that blast, give them also this carrot too, that, oh boy, we could also make the playoff and that will be the carrot on our season. If you want everybody to feel good about each other, then that'd be great. I'm not asking for everybody. I'm we're going from four teams to 12 teams in a sport with 131 teams. That's less than 10% of the sport. I mean, we're opening the, we're not flinging the door wide opening open. We're opening it just a sliver more. The door was a jar. We're just knocking it open a little bit more. I know. I know. And I think if you open it, then, then, yeah, I just feel like it's like a slippery slope. Because if you open, like to me, I think just 12 is the wrong number, personally. I think if you want to expand it, go to six or eight. Like there aren't 12 teams in college football that belong on that playing field. The reason why 12 I thought was good is because you avoid what you're trying to avoid, what you say you want to avoid. You avoid those early round blowouts by you move the elite team. You move it down the yeah. You move them out of the way so that these other teams can compete with other like minded teams. uh, Ari, now I'll quote your partner Andy Staples. This is a television show, right? Like we want to create good TV games so that first round. I know, but that Michigan State pit game that you referenced had better ratings than most regular season NBA games. Yeah, but how cool would it? Listen, I understand it's football. We love football. We watch football. We can bet on football. Football will always be king. But what I'm saying is, why can't it be better? Why can't we create? Because why can't we create spaces where the play where there are more games with stakes, so the players stay more involved? And 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 even if it's only four more games, those four early round playoff games 
Those are the games that are going to be intriguing. And you're right. Ultimately, we'll probably for what get reason? rollouts down the road. Down what the- reason would they be intriguing? Because they we would see get- them. We just saw them this year be intriguing. A pit with a pit Michigan State playoff game would have been awesome. A Utah Ohio State playoff game would have been awesome. Why do I think that? Because it was an awesome Rose Bowl. Right. Yeah, if we, I guess if we took those New Year's six games, a lot of them are competitive. It's the ones involving teams one and two that tend not to be competitive. So so push them down the line. And again, I think you're just anti little guy having fun. Like, I know I can't afford a Hamptons house, but like I, I can visit the Hamptons. Right. Like, am I allowed to occasionally? Visit? I know, but people do visit the Hamptons in the 14 playoff. It's not like it's Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia and Alabama only. But why can't why can't eight more teams visit the Hamptons? Why can't eight more <laughs> visit the Hamptons every once in a while? I don't think that's. A, yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's a problem. I think that's a funny analogy. I am not anti more people visiting the Hamptons. I'm afraid of what opening the door will do in the weird years where Alabama ends up losing games. They shouldn't. And honestly, like, I don't know if I've got a good argument against that really. Like, I, I think that is a really solid argument to like, we are just giving more of the upset. We're taking away the value of the upset, which is the entire tenant of the sport. Mm-hmm. If Ohio state, Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia get upset in the regular season, the response to that is going to be, who cares? They're going to make it anyway. Is that what we want? Yeah. And then the team that actually is the first eight seed in the history of the college football playoff in the 12 team tier to win a national championship, is just going to be three loss Alabama because it clicked at the end of the year. Right. Right. Cause they got healthy. Right. Yeah. It's not like Pitt's going to go win a national championship. All you're doing is making sure that the regular seasons for the fans of the big schools don't really matter anymore. And you're putting them in a position where it's like, ah, who cares if we lost to Michigan, maybe we'll get them in the playoff again. And by the way, we might win a national championship still, even though our team didn't like losing to Michigan, the ultimate punishment of that for an Ohio state fan is not being in the big 10 championship and not being in the playoff. That's the whole, the whole reason why the game is last at the end of the year. Like, and and if Michigan would have lost the Ohio state game this year in a 12 team playoff, they would have gotten it. And it would have been like, what, like what, I just don't know what we're doing. Right. If if we get to that point where just like, I just don't want any regular season game to be met with who cares. They're going to get in anyway. Yeah. But I think think you're overvaluing that. I think you're overvaluing the, who cares they're going to get in anyway. First of all, you're going to have buys and home games at stake, which are important. Right. So you can tell me that Ohio State's going to get in anyway, but Michigan is the team that's going to have the bye, and Ohio State's going to have to play Utah, maybe on the road at Utah in the first round of the of the playoff. Like that's kind of a big deal, right? Like, like you admit, like I, I know you you you, you know, you but then like Utah, it. Utah, who won the big the the Pac-12 and beat Oregon, their reward for their transcendent season is to get a fired up Ohio state team at home. So they can get their heads mashed in. I mean, like I, I understand like you predetermine all these games, but you also probably picked Ohio state to beat Michigan. Like I, I like, I, I yeah, get, sure. I, did. I get it. And, and listen, I do too. I am I, like, I was very close to, I, I am with you. Like I am a stars matter guy. I, I worship in your church. Generally speaking, <laughs> I am not like I picked Georgia to win the national championship because Georgia had a great roster. And the fact that they hadn't won it since 1980 didn't mean a damn thing to me. So like I, I am with you on these on these topics. But I, again, I just I want to pivot away from this for just a second. But I just also think that like 
there are other stakes involved here that will not make those games meaningless. And also, I think that you're overvaluing what it simply matters for Oklahoma State to beat Oklahoma. That's another one of those, like, like you, you know, like Oklahoma State in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is 82 and 19 against Oklahoma State. That is not because the Oklahoma State has not hired the right coach or not invested enough. That's just because there are structural elements of college football that prevent Oklahoma from being as good or Oklahoma State from being as good as Oklahoma. But my point of it is Oklahoma State beating Oklahoma will always be a big deal. Regardless, no matter what the playoff stakes are, it's always a big deal. What happens in the Michigan-Ohio State game is always a big deal. What happens in the Auburn-Alabama game is always a big deal, regardless of the stakes. So I I think you might be overvaluing because we live in this playoff world now. The fact that like, oh, it won't mean that much because of what the way it's tied to the playoff. I I don't think I I just I also think, too, that middle tier teams like Baylor, for instance, or Oklahoma State, if they would have won the Big 12, just because they wouldn't have made. made, And you know what? If Oklahoma State would have, you know, they're one yard away from winning the Big 12, they might have actually gotten into the playoff this year over Cincinnati. Um, But even if they wouldn't have winning the Big 12 is a banner that they could hang that is every bit as important to them as a national championship would be for a team that is accustomed to competing for them. And it'll still be that, though. But it could still be that even if they move on to the playoff and get their head smashed. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I just don't – I don't – I'm just not the type of person, and I, and I don't know if this makes me annoying to some of the people who are listening, but it's just like everybody gets what they want. Well, you know what no, I mean? Like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm not, I just like, I want to live in Laguna beach and I don't. So I'm going to work hard and try you're to doing that thing moment. again, where you're trying with like everybody. No, everybody doesn't get what they want. It's only a few more teams. It's just a very few more teams that we're doing this with, but there's going to be half the field is going to be ill-equipped to win a game at the highest level, which I think kind of waters down the product a little bit. A little let, bit. Let, me, let me pivot this a little bit. Do you think, College football, because we're, we're changing everything in college football now, right? We're going to be paying we players to a certain degree. We are transfer portaling. Mm-hmm. We are just, we are blowing up college football and sort of almost, do you think there should be some measures to create real competitive balance? Like, again, like I'm not, I'm not, necessarily, and well, I'm, like, what would those be? Then? And I'm not saying I'm for that. Maybe you limit, uh, you, you cut uh, 85 down to 65. Scholarship. If you do that, then you're taking away opportunities from without question, but yeah. without question, without question. But so here's it. <laughs> but but you say that, and like I understand, like that's that's the, the the dichotomy of this sport, right? We talk about how no, but you know these elite programs have built themselves up in a way, and we are, we are we are rewarding their excellence. Well, let's see how excellent they would be if they had to actually if they if they didn't have all these built-in advantages over their competition and they had to really strategize on how to well, let me extend an olive branch yeah i don't think there is like in a world where we're changing everything for mm-hmm. the transfer rule um nil all the stuff the sport is evolving in front of our eyes this last year might be the most transformative year for college football you know, imagine the playoff on top of that, because I, th- I do believe it's going to happen eventually, Ralph. And when it does, of course, I will be front row center to watch all those games that you're, of course I will. I'm not trying to act betting like on Georgia Tech, 
um, uh, uh, Georgia Tech North Carolina game because it's a big game in the to to see who wins the coastal and and that eight and three Georgia Tech has a chance to get to the ACC championship game and make the playoff. And you're talking to somebody who's bet on like two on two volleyball. So like yeah, I mean like you're that is for certain. But I also like bet Kansas games this year when they were playing other bad teams. So. But like my my thing is, is I don't think there's any built in. So here, first of all, if you think that expanding, not you, anybody listening, if you think that expanding the playoff to 12 is going to solve the parity problem, you're insane. It's not. Listen, there's been teams really down with that. I think maybe there's a little again, I think there's maybe some of the middle class uh, parity. It would would go look at the recruiting rankings from Michigan State after they made it. Go look at the recruiting rankings from Washington. There's no correlation between improved recruiting rankings and better teams and having a magical single one-off season. Oh, no. I only think from the idea of, like, if you can sell, we can make the playoff because it's a bigger playoff. Maybe that that that, that there's the pool, but not from the elite recruits, not from the yeah, very elite. For the top 100 players are still going to go to the same five schools. Um but here's what I look. I look at the college football map, and I hope that the parity problem. If you think it's a problem, and you know, trust me, I would, I would have loved to see Cincinnati beat Alabama. That would have been awesome for the sport. But it's just not. Good. Um, but if you look at the map right now, because I'm a very tactical, recruiting-oriented person, I look at Florida, which is one of the most heavily concentrated states in the country for talent, and I see two head coaches at major power schools that might be recruiting improvements. Right. Mario Cristobal at Miami, obviously Billy Napier's already done more in his two months there than Dan Mullen did from a recruiting standpoint in his entire tenure. You go into uh, Atlanta and Georgia owns that. You go into Ohio, Ohio State owns that. You go into Texas and all of a sudden A&M just signed the greatest class of all time. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian is in the hunt for Arch Manning. It's very hard to recruit Texas at Oklahoma into that mix. And Texas is a very, in all the power five schools, that's a very hard place to recruit. You go out into Southern California, which is another heavily concentrated area for talent. And all of a sudden there's an expectation that Lincoln Riley will get the majority of those kids. So what I'm doing here is I'm looking at the, the, the U S map and I'm looking at where the powerhouse programs typically have gone to stack their their recruiting classes with 11 top 100 players. I see where you're going. We tend to agree on this. Yeah. So if everybody and like, listen, when you say expand the team, the the playoff to 12, we're talking about USC. We're talking about Miami. We're talking about Florida. We're talking about very good programs. It's not like all of a sudden Mississippi State's going to be a main fixture in the 12 now. There are a lot of traditional powers that benefited from a lot of the things that you talked about at the beginning of the show that still aren't making it. So what you're doing is you might open the door to Florida, which is, in my opinion, a program that doesn't need the help. Or you're you're opening the door to Penn State, which has beaten Ohio State and won the Big Ten already so they can do it again. Mm -hmm. You're not opening the door to Arizona or UCLA or something. You're just opening the door to other traditional powers that play in big games already anyway. Um, But if everybody does their part, if Billy Napier locks down five more players in Florida a year, if Miami locks down five or seven more players from South Florida a year, if Brian Kelly takes care of LSU or Louisiana, Georgia is goes without saying they're going to get the best in Atlanta. Ohio in, in the Midwest is going to get Ohio State's going to do their part. And what you do is you stop teams like Alabama and Ohio State and Georgia and Texas A&M, for that matter, from stockpiling 15% of the top 100 players in any given class. And you do that collectively, then maybe we won't have such a lopsided 
situation to begin with. Yeah. So like, of course, Alabama is what it is because of the advantages historically from that program. But there is only one major program in college football that hasn't had an extended down period. And that's Ohio State. Ohio State. So like, I mean, it it does ebb and flow. And with Nick Saban retires, maybe Alabama won't be this good anymore. So I do think to a certain extent that it's not impossible that we flatten the curve, which I guess is a not a wise way to put it, but a, a way to I get it. to make it a little bit more even without changing the rules. Mm-hmm. And it's just like if Florida wants to make the playoff, I bet you if you ask their fans who watched Urban Meyer win two out of three national championships and be the best program in college football for a five-year period, might want to make it when it's four and not because they made it at number seven. Right. And it's just like, I don't, I, I just feel like, okay, fine. Let's open it to 12. That's okay. But I just don't think it's going to help the teams you think it's going to help. I mean, you're going to see some of the same team, like Alabama, Florida is always a big game mm-hmm. as it is. LSU, Florida is a big game. How many times has LSU made the playoff once mm-hmm. and they won the national championship? It's like, yeah, we know we have a, a Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio state problem right now, clearly. But moving it to 12 isn't going to all of a sudden create some sort of grand opening for all the have-nots of the sport to actually like break through. And I know that there's a lot of teams that might have made it in one-off years uh, as an eight seed or a five seed or a six seed, TCU, Baylor, a lot of these teams, Penn State, Wisconsin, a lot of these teams come to mind. But all these teams have been on the cusp of breaking through in the current system. So, you know, to me, I think that the prize of making the playoff is program altering for the teams that break through when it's close knitted and it's only between the top four, because like, it's like now the teams that have made the playoff are in an exclusive club, that they earned from special seasons and not as a result of, well, and l- listen, as it currently stands now, Ralph, how many years of the playoff have we been like, well, Holy crap, who's going to be four in this disaster of a season? You know, it's like, we, we got three elite teams or two elite teams and it's like, well, who else are we going to, it's like anybody who watches the sport and like understands the way that these teams are built knows that Michigan and, and Cincinnati were not built to win a national championship this year, but both of them got in because there was nobody else to put in under the current confines of the way the sport is built. And I think that's great, but like there isn't, there was only two or one team this year, two teams that were good enough to win a national championship and they played for the national title. Right. It's like, if there was a 12 team playoff this year, you would have had two great teams and a bunch of teams that just weren't all that great. And you know what? Maybe Ohio State would have made the national championship this year, even though they were a deeply flawed team that didn't put it together. And you know what? I think that would suck for, for the rest of the sport too, because I don't think the rest of the sport wants to watch watch teams that we love seeing upset in the middle of the year get to play for it anyway, because, because they're they're looking for like these teams, even when they're bad, will still be number nine. Well, again, I just to make people understand, I'm not necessarily looking yeah. to create a, a, a recruiting draft and I'm not looking to cut a lot of scholarships here, but again, it is the strange dichotomy of like, we, I just don't know if there's a rule, but Ralph, I don't know if there's a no, clean no, cut and, rule that you could make that would change things. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's an interesting hypothetical. It sometimes. is for sure. And I'm with you on, this is one of the reasons why, and I brought this up with other people. I am super interested. I, I'm not going to say excited because I don't believe in savior coaches. I believe in programs having, having uh, an epiphany and deciding that they want to play at this level and they want to do, they want to be this type of program. So Lincoln Riley being hired by USC is part of USC's strategy to again, be an elite program. And to and, it co- and we don't know how much money he's making, but that was a 
financial commitment from an administration that was right. tired of losing. Right. And, which and is came, more important than who they hire. And it came with a lot of other financial commitments and other and other uh, sure. and, or, and greater vision. And guess so, what? Now they're going to be better now because the program decided to put their foot down. We think so. We think so. We hope so. They will be. Yeah. We'll hope so only. And when I say hope so, because again, like the USC situation and the Miami situation, and you brought up a good one with Florida too, and maybe Florida State gets its goddamn act together. And we have another one that has a ceiling that could possibly um, reach that reach that height. Because again, like I am interested in those programs and those coaching changes, because to me, it signals the possibility of these are programs with elite ceilings. They have a, they might be able to tip some of the balance here. So it's not two or three elite programs that have a chance to win a national championship, maybe four in, in if we really want to stretch it, but maybe we spread it out to six. Maybe we spread it out to, you know, within a given year, there are maybe five teams, uh, five programs that are operating at a really high level and, and good enough to win a national championship. I don't know if that's the case, but that's why I'm super interested in what, and what people have to realize, too, is that if Florida is better, Alabama is incrementally worse. People don't realize that Alabama yeah, has been raiding the state of Florida. Right. And been Alabama crushing. has been raiding so the state has, of Texas. And so has Ohio State. And Ohio State has been crushing yeah. it in Texas. So if Florida takes seven more players a year than they would have out of their state at a high level, instead of having to you know settle for guys who rank in the mid-30s in Florida, then Ohio State and Alabama and Georgia, which go into that state all the time to get their elite level players, are going to be incrementally worse. It's so a way like, of it's a way of trying to stop what what Georgia and Alabama had last year with these super teams. There's so much of the, these this very elite talent, whatever one you want, you want to call it, top 100 recruits, top 75 recruits. in the 2021 class, 66 of the top 100 players went to five programs. Yeah, so that and and if we can just put like and so you're right. If you can just put a few more of those players those top 100 players are now spread across seven or eight more programs seven seven programs eight or nine programs that makes a big difference those type of players those type of transformative players the guys who go first overall picks or, or high first round picks make an enormous difference and if you switch two or three of them more to michigan if michigan had four more of those players maybe the michigan georgia game's a little closer Sure. I'm just throwing that. Actually, look at all the schools, though. Can USC make the playoff? Yes. Can Oregon make the playoff in in its current form? Yes. Can Florida make it? Yes. Can Florida State make it? Yes. Can Miami make it? Yes. Can Clemson make it? Of course. All these teams don't need it to expand to make it. And like when you start talking about like historical advantages that have put these programs in a position to compete, a lot of the teams that are second in line right now to make the playoff are teams that don't need it to expand to break through. So it's like, no, will, will Florida ever be Alabama? No, I don't know that anybody will ever. No do one Alabama. will ever be this. So, so like, that's not to me, that's not what we hold up here and say, well, Mississippi state can never reach that. But Mississippi state has spent time in the top five of the playoff rankings in the past. Imagine if they got a coach, and I don't even know if it's reasonable to expect that they would, but they, what if like Mississippi State hired the right coach that was a very good recruiter? They could have a breakthrough year where they, if, if Mississippi State. Well, they had I mean, that. They had that breakthrough. Yeah. Year. Right. We saw the it was great. State. Right. So, you know, listen, I am all for watching games that matter. And if you believe that 12 teams will create more games that matter without taking away from the regular season charm that it has right now, then I'm all for it. 
But I'm I'm very big on playing devil's advocate on this because I do think that there is something special about a elite group and breaking through and getting that group getting into that group based on the merit of your accomplishments rather than receiving the 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 uh, the boost from making a playoff that only included you because they needed to expand it to more teams so everybody can feel more inclusive. So, you know, once they make it to 12, four years go by and it's normal, we'll forget about the four and we'll just talk about that all the time and maybe that'll change the sport. I just don't know that I'm particularly interested in seeing, you know, teams like Iowa State or Minnesota or those teams play in the playoff, just so we can say, you know what, you guys had a really good year for your standard. Enjoy it until you end up getting hit with the buzzsaw, you know? And it's just like, and, and I honestly like Andy made this point to me too. And he goes, well, why do special seasons for these teams, these once in a lifetime seasons um, have to have to end without being included in the playoff. And it's just like, do we really want it to end the other way? Like, do you want these teams that, that will be remembered by their fans forever to have their final game of their special season, their their once-in-a-lifetime season, be a 29-point loss to Georgia? Or do we want them to just not be on that playing field and let them go win the Peach Bowl and feel good about themselves? And then they'll be able to, like the 2000, was it, what year was the Oklahoma State year? Was it the 11? 2011. 2011. So do you think Oklahoma State fans right now who would probably tell you right now that that team was good enough to win a national championship rather remember Oklahoma State as a team that was left out or would they rather remember Oklahoma State as the team that had an amazing year and lost to Alabama by 40? And it's just like, you know, I don't think that that the what ifs, which is the, the entire foundation of the sport, you know, are that bad. And also, I just I just don't I, I don't know. I don't know. I think well, I made I, I, we have done this long enough. And here's the thing. The closest I've probably ever come to getting somebody to convince me that we should stay at four has been the last, I don't know, it's almost, gosh, it's almost been an hour we've been talking. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations. You have at least, I, I feel like you've mission accomplished in that, A, you almost convinced me. I still feel like I'm right here. Yeah. Expansion is better. But, but I appreciate you uh, at least like presenting a good argument that could sway me a little bit. Um, It kind of feels like politics a little to me because it's like, and I'm not a very political person, but there are people listening to this right now that are like, go Ralph, (laughs) nothing that this idiot says I will ever believe I am a hundred percent for expansion. The sport needs it. I'm tired of Alabama and Clemson. Let's, let's expand it. And then you've got other people who have already made up their mind. They're like, wow, this Wasserman guy really gets it. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know that I'm trying to convince anybody, but I do think that having a intelligent conversation with a good back and forth with valid points on both sides is a healthy way to, to consume the sport. And for people who, who don't really know what side they're on to try to contextualize it for them so that they can kind of formulate their opinion. So, you know, I'm not, I wasn't trying to change your mind and I, listen, I love college football and more matchups means more fun for everybody. I'm all for it. And, you know, I just, I'm never going to be a person that just, feels good for the sake of feeling good. Like I, I would rather, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think if I were a fan, I, if I were a fan of team X and team X never made the 14 playoff and then they finally made it at the nine seed, it wouldn't feel as special as it would have for like the way that it might've felt for Cincinnati or Michigan fans. Here's the, here's the deal, Ari. And we'll end on this. When you're, when Liv uh, is a little older, 
Mm-hmm. You come to New York, you, your family, my family, we'll figure it out. And we'll both visit the Hamptons at the same time. We'll try yeah. to, maybe we'll do an Airbnb. That What's we, the hotel situation up there like? Yeah, I don't think you don't worry. I, I mean, I've been to the Hamptons again because I've lived most of my life here. Yeah. We had a we had a quote unquote Hamptons house when I was in college, but it was kind of like the the trashy Hamptons. Like there's like there's a couple of different Hamptons. There's like West like Hampton. Montauk is like Bridge the, Hampton. Well, Montauk yeah. is even farther than that. And there's Bridge Hampton and there's like other places where like, oh, here's like the places like the how where, where you get like 20 college kids each throw in like 500 bucks and they like and they and they pack into a house. I once was part of one of those when I that's was a pen, that's the Penn State Hamptons. The <laughs> The- See what I'm saying? Yeah. You're in the Hamptons, but you're not quite with the elite. <laughs> so it depends on which it depends on which Hamptons you want to visit. But what I'm saying is what we'll do is our families, we can both cobble together enough and we'll try yes. to live like we actually are part of the real Hamptons for like a weekend. We'll like we'll fake it for a yeah. weekend. But everybody who's actually a part of the Hamptons, and you'll enjoy there. that. Like, I know it won't be what your dream is to live in the Hamptons. But everybody knows we're faking it. <laughs> right. We'll be everybody will know. We'll be Alabama will be up in the in the real nice Hamptons. It'll be, oh, look at this. Look at Baylor down there thinking they're one of us. You're not one of us. Enjoy it while you're here, because once you come up here, we're going to let you know that you can't afford to eat in our restaurants and it's going to be a 41 point win. <laughs> Ari Wasserman, you can read him at The Athletic. You can hear him on The Andy Staples Show uh, twice a week at least, giving these type of uh, great opinions. Uh, Ari, man, thanks so much for, like, doing this with me today. Uh, It's always a great conversation. Uh, Go hang out with your daughter, and uh, I appreciate you taking a little time on a day that I know is a little hectic for you. Yeah, no problem. Anytime for you, Ralph, and anytime you want to, you know, talk in circles with me for another hour, I'd be happy to do it. So uh, thanks again, and, and was honored to be a part of the show. And now, three down. First down. Art Bryles was back in college football for a few days, and now he is gone again. Just to refresh your memory, Bryles was fired by Baylor in 2016 after an independent investigation into campus-wide issues in the reporting and handling of sexual assault allegations. New Grambling coach Hugh Jackson, yes, that Hugh Jackson, formerly of the Cleveland Browns and other NFL stops, hired Bryles to be offensive coordinator and then came out with a statement Monday, we're recording on Tuesday, defending the choice and talking about second chances. A few hours later, Bryles stepped down saying he didn't want to be a distraction. I understand that there is a not insignificant number of people who believe Bryles was scapegoated for Baylor's institutional failings back in 2016. There are probably morsels of truth to that position. But even if you want to take that into account, there is ample evidence that Bryles instilled little, if any, accountability or discipline in his program. That alone is a fireable offense in college football and worthy reason for him not getting another college coaching job. Even giving him the most possible benefit of the doubt, for what happened at Baylor, the most serious failings at Baylor, there is little reason for him to be considered fully exonerated. Now, Bryles did not face criminal charges. There is still at least one pending lawsuit that names him 
Otherwise, no court of law has found him responsible. The NCAA also gave him and Baylor a pass because the NCAA simply has no rules governing sexual assault. Um, so technically, Baylor didn't get a pass. They were penalized and Bryles was castigated for his behavior, but there were no places to find violations of NCAA rules when it came to sexual assault and the handling of allegations and reporting of possible crimes. Bryles has not had to pay damages to any victim who might tie his neglect to their assault. It is also really important to point out that the Dallas Morning News reported back in 2018 that Bryles received $15 million in a settlement from Baylor of his contract with the school. His only jobs in football since have been working with a pro team in Italy and coaching at a small Texas high school. Really, Bryles' only punishment after what happened at Baylor is that he has not been afforded the opportunity to work at the highest levels of football. But with $15 million as a going away present from Baylor and plenty of powerful allies in Texas, I'd be pretty surprised if Art Bryles and his family have been made destitute by that punishment. So while you Jackson can talk about second chances, my question, as it has been for several years now, is why does Art Bryles deserve a second chance? Why does a now 66-year-old millionaire, whose offense was cutting edge seven years ago, deserve a spot on a Division I coaching staff over countless other coaches from Power 5 to high school who don't have a hint of scandal on their resume? I'm past the point of believing that these successful coaches, like Bryles, have magical powers held by only a select few. Yes, Art Bryles is good at offense. You cannot convince me that he is a unique genius whose ability to coach offense cannot be replicated. I'm all for second chances, but I remain flummoxed by the desire some have had to throw a lifeline to a man who appears in no way to need one. Second down, the Football Playing Rules Committee, the NCAA Football Playing Rules Committee, is meeting this week in Indianapolis. On the agenda, tweaks to the way the game clock is stopped and started that would likely move games along more quickly and cut down on the number of plays in a college football game. The reasons are twofold. A, player safety to cut down on exposures over the course of a season especially if at some point the college football playoff does expand. Of course, now, even if playoff expansion does happen in the not-so-distant future, only a small number of teams would be playing additional games on top of the Max 15 a championship game participant can currently play. Still, if you're going to ask more of the players, on one end, it makes sense to make accommodations elsewhere. Shorter games also fit more nicely, comfortably, into TV windows. Just watch a typical NFL Sunday for proof of that. There was a lot of conversation around the length of games and the number of plays being run by hurry-up offenses when teams like Oregon and West Virginia made fast football all the rage about 10 years ago. Brett Bielema, then Arkansas coach, now Illinois coach, formerly Wisconsin coach, 
was maybe the most notable of all the coaches calling for the game to be slowed down and saying it was a safety risk running all these plays so quickly. The problem was it became a battle of styles, and you can't effectively gain consensus to change the rules when the changes impact some teams more than others. Billum's heart may have been in the right place, and the intent might have been fine, But when you say your offense is dangerous and needs to be changed, you're threatening the livelihood of a bunch of coaches who have used a particular style of offense to have success. The ideas being talked about now to tweak the way the game is timed includes starting the game clock when the ball is spotted after an incomplete pass, much like it's done when when a player runs out of bounds and maybe running the clock after a first down. Now in college football, clock stops at a first down and doesn't start again until the ball is spotted and ready for play. You can do two things. You can either spot the ball faster or try to spot the ball faster and get the game clock moving again, or simply not stop the clock at all on a first down. Officials will tell you they're already picking up the pace on that a little bit and trying to spot the ball a little faster and get that thing going after a first down. Those changes could cut down on total number of plays, but still allow an offense to move quickly and ultimately control the pace of the game, which is the way it is now. Also on the Rules Committee's agenda, what to do about teams faking injuries to slow down those hurry-up offenses. And as always, targeting will be talked about. By the end of the week, the Rules Committee will come out with some proposals, possibly on these topics. The proposals get put up for feedback from coaches, administrators, whatnot, and eventually either get adopted by the Division I Council or punted on. Third down is a programming note. I'm going to be doing a lot of college basketball over the next couple of weeks. First, the ACC tournament at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, and then the first round of the NCAA tournament. I might work in a little March Madness preview on the upcoming episodes of the pod, but mostly we're going to stick to football. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have questions that you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag, the digits 25 at gmail.com. I am Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.